The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Ferris. Hey there. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out Space News and Mission Deep Dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, including blog articles talking about the topic we will talk about today, among many other things. And you can join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com or reach out to us directly on Twitter at SpexCast or by email at SpexCast at gmail.com. On April 16th, 2021, NASA announced the sole winner of a $2.9 billion contract to return humans to the moon for the first time since 1972. SpaceX's Starship and Super Heavy will form the human landing system alongside NASA's Space Launch System and Orion Crew Capsule. The contract is a major boon to SpaceX, which has so far been developing Starship entirely with private funds. However, NASA and SpaceX face many obstacles on the path to landing on the moon by 2024. And those are some of the things we're going to talk about today. We did talk about the announcement for the human landing system uh, request for proposals back in May of 2020. So uh, if you want some background on the story leading up to this point, go check out that episode. Today, we're going we're gonna to talk about the, uh, the announcement itself a little bit more about SpaceX's Starship, uh, the lunar variant, which will be part of the human landing system, and what this means in general. I'm going to preface this by saying, for me personally, this is my reactions, which are my own, and I <laughs> am kind of floored by this decision. So let's get let's get into it. What happened? What's what's been announced? Yes. Yeah, so NASA on Friday announced the winner of their option A for the HLS program. So there were three companies uh, who had won awards as part of the base period for the HLS program. Uh, And they had been working for 10 months on their designs and proposals. And option A is the follow-up to the base period, which is for actually building and sending humans to the surface of the moon. So it is winning the contract, basically, um, as part of the the Artemis program. And so NASA selected a single company, SpaceX, uh, with their lunar starship, uh, which was a huge surprise because the rumors coming out of NASA and NASA's own policy was they wanted to have two companies uh, compete in option A. So very similar to the commercial crew program where SpaceX with Crew Dragon and Boeing with Starliner uh, continued all the way towards the end. And so you have two functional vehicles at the end. NASA wanted to have that same kind of concept and plan for the lunar lander competition, but they only chose one. And that one that they picked was the underdog, to be honest. Um, Thinking back to the HLS uh, episode that we did about a year ago, um, the three competitors were a lunar variant of Starship, which people, at least I, if I recall, I thought was kind of a <laughs> like trying to force a, a square peg in a round hole for SpaceX with Starship as a reason to continue or get some extra money. And then the national team led by Blue Origin 
uh, with partners Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Draper. And then finally, uh, Dynetics. Um, so the national team was like, I don't know, the, the Lunar Excursion Module V2, like a modernized Apollo style. And then uh, Dynetics was something out of Kerbal Space Program, just completely radical, uh, but very functional. And so compared to those other two, Starship seems like just like, well, it could do it according to the specifications. Well, yeah, sure. I guess it counts. And here we are. They're the only one that got picked. I am floored. I think even if you look at NASA's own solicitation from last year, SpaceX was rated as the lowest bidder in terms of... uh, technical approach and management as uh, I think the rating was acceptable for both categories. Categories being technological and management, right? Techn- yeah, technical approach and management. And both other bidders had much higher ratings in terms of, for both, in those, for both of those areas where the rating was very good. And so if, if you read the solicitation or just looked at the news, a year ago, I think one would expect Blue Origin, the national team, to be kind of, uh, the favorites in this competition. But I suspect there are a few other factors which we can go into for why SpaceX is the sole awardee this time. Okay, what what are those factors? The first factor for that's on record here is Congress only allocated a portion of the budget that was expected for the human landing system, forcing NASA to pick the most affordable option available. Wait, so $2.9 billion is only a portion of the budget? Well, it's $2.9 billion over a four-year kind of work period. So uh, all contractors were asked to come up with a plan of we need you to land crew on the surface of the moon by 2024 and also have an uncrewed landing demo and so the the milestone based payments would have been done through 2020 2021 and so on um whether nasa and the contractors are ready by 2024 is up to debate but uh what ended up happening was that nasa's budget request for additional funding for HLS. So this is in addition to the billions they spend on SLS, Orion, all their other work. Uh, they only were fulfilled to 25%. And so roughly $850 million for 2021. Gotcha. So with only a limited amount of money to make a decision, they went with, in this case, the cheapest bid, which was SpaceX. Now, uh, if I recall correctly, the most expensive uh, estimate a year ago was the national team, with, with uh, Blue Origin's approach being just, just like far and away more expensive than the other two. Is that how it played out in the end? So an interesting thing is that in the base period award, you're correct that saying the national team had the most expensive bid. But in this option A, the revised proposals that each team brought up, uh, national team is no longer the most expensive. NASA does, doesn't give out exact prices, but they do say that 
uh, national team was much more expensive than SpaceX, so much more than $2.9 billion. But in fact, Dynetics was even more expensive than national team. And so if you dive into the source selection document, which is NASA fully explaining its reasoning, it does reference the fact that the national team was willing to invest a lot of their own money to help offset the cost of the program, which is a nice thing to, to see. So there might have been some changes to the overall program and technology to make it cheaper, but also them willing to put in their own money alongside government money to get the job done, which is in effect a net benefit to NASA, basically doubling their effective budget for this program. I will say that is contrasted with the fact that the proposal, it notes also in the solicitation that Blue Origin did require at least two advance payments somewhere in the funding schedule to move forward with particular portions of, of the development, which is explicitly mentioned as a violation of, of the requirements. And so... And, and 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 that seems to have also factored in the, in or it is listed as one of the decision factors that Blue Origin incorrectly listed two advance payments in the in in their proposal. Yeah, it is an interesting an interesting factor where you know as written and as submitted to NASA, NASA like against their own rules could not have chosen Blue Origin. Now, there isn't a, a footnote in the document that says, well, if we really had wanted to choose Blue Origin, we probably could have gone to the table with them and kind of revised their bid and removed the offending language, which is against NASA's rules. But the uh, in the document, NASA says that there's no reason that they would want to do that and pursue Blue Origin's uh, bid altogether. So they didn't even try to rectify the bid to make it legal according to NASA's own rules. So does it does that mean it was kind of like um you know when you're going to buy a car and you lowball because you know you they'll never sell you the car at such a like uh an asking price that you're asking but with the expectation that there's negotiation to the table and here they kind of put in their solicitation hey how about this like asking for more with the expectation of negotiating some middle ground that is um, in between. So these are fixed price contracts. So there isn't any room to negotiate the price once they're signed. The specific violation here is this notion of an advanced payment. So these fixed price contracts are milestone based, which means NASA will give contractors money once they complete a milestone. And so milestones can be design reviews, they can be doing demonstration missions, things like that, uh, but they're usually tied to the contractor successfully doing work. And so an advance payment is saying, well, give us cash up front, and then we will work towards the next milestone, uh, which kind of goes against the idea of the contractor getting paid for the work it does. And that makes a lot of sense looking at the broader aspect of, of things, right? If you look at a, another kind of program, where you might have many contractors working through milestones, if you have a risky contractor, you don't want to give them money ahead of time for work they haven't done, right? And so while it's kind of magnified 
on these development contracts, you wouldn't prepay, you know, a contractor that you've never worked with before uh, with and make sure like that you want to make sure that you actually get the goods and the services that you're paying for. So that's why these uh, advanced payments are against the rules um, I, and uh, made the bid I guess I'm, conf- I'm guess I'm confused about why you would submit a proposal that includes things that violate the rules unless you think you can um, get away negotiate. With it. Yeah, well, get away with it or at least like talk, have talks about, okay, two advanced payments. Okay, well, how about one then? And that type of thing, since you can't negotiate once it's signed, right? So like, unless it was, do you think it was a mistake or do you think it was an attempt at um, bending the constraints that were originally written? That's something that we don't have the insight into. Um, I'm sure that, the lawyers uh, at Blue Origin are going to be discussing those kinds of points over the next couple of days and weeks. Um, but I, in my personal opinion, I don't think this was an attempt to finagle more money out of NASA, like after the fact. Uh, I, in my opinion, is that this is probably a mistake uh, or some kind of miscalculation on the people writing the contract because these contracts, you know, they have lots of requirements. Like NASA will send li- dozens or hundreds of requirements that the this piece of paper you send in has to meet. And so mm-hmm. everything is kind of cut and, cut and dry in that. So potentially a misunderstanding, potentially an oversight. Um, I don't think that, you know, they're in a great bargaining position with things like that. Like that's something that you really should try to work into like the actual contract, right? Like the work you're trying to do, things like that, rather than, you know, a specific milestone payment or prepayment. So yeah. it's interesting again, also, like you mentioned that, that they're, they were offering to put up their own investments alongside it. So um, it does not seem like they're trying to, you know, twist the arm of NASA into giving them more money in this case. And so I agree with you that it's, some miscalculation or, or mistake for sure. Um, yeah, from I my think, perspective, I think in the grand scheme of things, as as per the solicitation, if NASA really liked the rest of the bid, they would have kind of gone back and renegotiated some of those terms or kind of just provided feedback. But in the grander scheme of things, I think the funding kind of requirements seem to be the biggest driving factor here. I will say there are notes there too about. Blue Origin's approach versus SpaceX's. And Dynetics falls in the same kind of category as Blue Origin, where one aspect that, that's being that's assessed is the commercial viability of both of those landers, Blue Origins and the national teams and the Dynetics. And in the solicitation, you know, NASA does mention that the, the kind of the commercial prospects for both landers are not um, are not strong compared to Starship, which is is a multi-purpose vehicle, or at least the architecture is multi-purpose and can be used for both as a second stage to orbit and for multiple kind of in-space missions. And so that is partially one of the factors that's also driving the choice for Starship. Like it would have been two, two purpose-built, like, 
by investing in something that is more generalized and capable of more things, you're investing in the infrastructure of near space and cislunar um, essentially space travel and, and cargo. So yeah. essentially, they'd be hitching their wagon to an art to a spacecraft architecture or a, uh, you know, starship architecture that that will serve multiple purposes. So even if if not a lot of funding comes through specifically for the lunar variant, you will still have the tanker variant and you will have the passenger variant. And from there on, it's it's modification as opposed to com- building a whole new vehicle from from scratch. Yeah, the commercialization and sustainability aspects of the program is something that's really interesting that doesn't really bubble up uh, on the surface on these kinds of announcements. So within NASA, there is there has been this concern that quickly returning to the moon would end up being what people call a flags and footprints kind of mission. So roughly similar to what we did with Apollo, an architecture that gets us there quickly, but doesn't give us the capability to do more ambitious things on the moon, or at least nothing more ambitious than we did 60 years ago. And so in that context, um, part of the proposals that these companies had to come up with had to have two parts. One was a sustainable kind of evolution of their lander to support more ambitious missions. So the initial requirement for 2024 is for two crew to land on the surface of the moon. And the sustainable goal is to have up to four astronauts land on the the surface of the moon and to provide global access so that, well, global access, full lunar surface access. So South Pole, North Pole, any, any latitude on the moon. So a more capable vehicle as well as having the ability to bring down mass, experiments, other things to the lunar surface. And when we looked at the base contract awards a year ago, both Blue Origin and Dynetics had concepts that solved the immediate need with kind of proposals to expand upon to suit the forward-looking need. But SpaceX was just so much more ambitious and so much over-capable for the initial need. It's like, well you're taking a lot of risk and you're building such a much larger vehicle that's not needed for the landing in 2024. But what we actually saw happen in the announcement today is that NASA was very happy with that sustainable kind of architecture. It's like, well, like this is more capability than we need now, but it solves and serves the capability we need for the next five to 10 years on the moon. And the more telling bit was that the sustainability plans for the other two companies was not fleshed out at all. So NASA actually specifically calls out uh, the national team saying that the in order to upgrade from two people to four people uh, as part of the sustainable design would basically entail completely redesigning the vehicle. So the entire ascent stage would have to be completely redesigned. The descent stage would have to have serious improvements, new tanks, new propellant tanks, and that would cost a lot of money. You would basically have to build two separate lunar landers to support your sustainable aspects. And for the Dynetics approach, they had a nice commercialization plan with having fueled depots and uncrewed landers and things like that, but they didn't really uh, have like fleshed out details, or at least the details they gave to NASA. NASA didn't really trust them. It's like, you haven't really thought this through. Right? You, you haven't really thought about a sustainable lander. 
And so that's really nice to see that NASA is kind of focusing on not just what's going to happen in three years from now, but also what they could see at the end of the 2020s and early 2030s. Hold on. So so uh, when you mentioned sustainability and, and recurring missions, that sounds a lot like the option B award. So there was the base, uh, which we talked about last year. There was the option A, which was announced um, April of this year. And then in the future, after landing the initial crew on the moon, there's this option B, which is recurring flights to ferry crew and mass down to the surface. And so that's like a step that's like compartmentalized from this initial one. And on the announcement uh, that NASA gave uh, that I listened to when it happened, they were speaking about it like, yes, SpaceX was selected for option A, but we are considering all players and including ones that did not submit bids for the option A, uh, a or base. Um, we're considering everyone for this option B, which sounds like they're leaving the door open, at least verbally, for someone else besides SpaceX to come along and say, hey, hey, we figured out a, a solution for sustainable efforts to get people and cargo to, the, to and from the surface of the moon, which is, I, I want to talk about this for a little bit because my initial impression was, wait a minute, you're already picking someone to invest billions of dollars into a system to do the foundational requirement that you need to do the option B. You, it feels like to me, you can't do um, sustainable operations, ferrying people in cargo to the moon. If you can't, if you don't have a system to do it that in the first place. So they're giving SpaceX the money to figure out how to do it in the first place. And then it's like, Oh, but anyone else is welcome to try. And this is what confuses me. So um, you just mentioned that nobody else, none of the other, um, National Team and Dynetics, neither of them had a real solid plan for this. And then Starship could already do this if it were to be developed. Um, so now, like, can you guys help me think through this? Like, what does it mean to keep the door open, so to speak, for option B, for sustainable efforts on the moon, if you're only giving money to one competitor for the option A to get there in the first place? So there's two parts to this, in my opinion. One, obviously, SpaceX is going to have a massive advantage, having had the initial development costs, roughly 50% of the cost of Starship subsidized by this contract, right? They're going to have the equipment built. They're going to have demonstrated landings on the moon by the 2024. And that's going to make it really hard for a second competitor to come in and also serve that market. However, NASA is really, really serious about having more than one option. In the past, with a single source of access to space, when that source goes away, NASA gets into a really painful situation. So I think they really want to have at least two separate ways to get to the moon. But with the option B contract, uh, NASA also is is trying to call it like sustainable lunar operations. In the, the press conference, they, they talked about like probably like half a dozen different times that there's a separate contract, it's for sustainable operations, it's in the future. I think NASA's banking on the entire um, landscape of commercial space and lunar space to be very different by 2024 and even in the late 2020s. And you're going to see a couple major things change. First off, we're going to have a commercial provider 
demonstrate that they can land on the moon, right? Even if we believe SpaceX can do it, they're proving that a commercial approach can indeed solve that problem. Two, the ISS is nearing retirement age, right? Most people are saying it's going to last roughly to 2028. It's going to get very expensive to continue beyond that. So we're seeing that kind of shift over to potentially a commercial space station, other alternatives. But NASA is building the Lunar Gateway, which is a a NASA-funded space station around the moon, and that has its own um, suite of support missions and logistic missions. So, you know, commercial, like, orbit resupply contracts, things like that. And so I think NASA's banking on the momentum of Gateway plus this initial lunar landing to really push a lot of interest and momentum towards the moon. And hopefully they expect to get congressional funding much greater, say in 2024, 2026, to fund that second lander, to fund a potential moon base, to fund a expansion to Gateway, to have you know many, many people in orbit around the moon uh, 24-7. So I think that's what NASA's banking on here is that if things go really well for Artemis and these initial crew landings, that they can use that momentum to open up the pool of funding and give other companies a chance later in the 2020s. Your phone rang right in the middle of that. Uh, right in the middle of that yeah, last thing. Yeah, make sure you're muted. You said. I, I have been muted on the phone, but not the laptop. And the laptop has notif- text notifications and it just snuck up on me. <laughs> I, I will say, if you look at how option A and B are laid out, I think there is a core assumption there that whatever vehicles are being developed for option A may not be the vehicles being used for option B. Uh, the focus on option A is timeline. And I think there's an expectation there for uh, making the trade-off away from sustainability and recurrence to just timeline and risk reduction. I think SpaceX's bid, and, and only SpaceX's bid, breaks that a bit because the quick approach now is also, quote-unquote, quick approach. is also the sustainable approach and so it allows SpaceX to double dip in a way that I don't necessarily would have envisioned the national team or Dynetics doing. So I guess that's that makes sense why SpaceX kind of swept the the Option A award because the assumption was that all of the bids would be like the other two and SpaceX broke the assumption and now kind of like uh, short-circuited the the rubric the decision matrix and just like if you actually look at the decision matrix it's not really that spacex is so much it's not really that spacex provides so much more capability than the other competitors it really is mostly about the capability for the price right sustainability is a small metric in the the whole decision matrix that they went through and so it's really nice to have that and it became a net positive for SpaceX, while the other companies that either didn't put that much thought into it or completely ignored that, it became actually like a, a negative for them. But really, SpaceX is putting up roughly 50% of the cost of Starship and the lunar variant, with NASA providing the other 50%. And 
SpaceX was actually flexible enough to fit into NASA's constrained funding. So SpaceX didn't reduce the cost of their bid, which is against the rules of the competition. But they actually worked with NASA to spread out their milestone payments to fit the funding levels that NASA expects so that NASA wouldn't have to wait six months or 12 months to start work on HLS, that they could work with the money they have now to get the ball rolling kind of thing. And so it really comes down to SpaceX is providing a lot of capability that comes with a lot of ambitious risk, but they're subsidizing it with their own commercial funds. And they've started to have a proven track record, specifically with the Crew Dragon program and their work on Cargo Dragon and other NASA projects, that all of those factors kind of came together. It's like, hey, like, we know this is more than you asked for, but we, we can be trusted to put two people on the moon by 2024, even if they're riding in a ship that could probably take 15 people. I want to mention something here that I think makes... Starship stand out um, in a way, in another way that wasn't really anticipated last year. And that's since uh, 2020, now we're almost halfway through 2021 at the time of recording. SpaceX has done not just a couple, but like several <laughs> test flights of Starship, where this upper, upper stage, I guess, like the base. Um, variant of it, right? Just a massive nine meter wide behemoth of a vehicle with three Raptor engines is going up to, uh, you know, about a dozen kilometers in the air and trying to land back down. That's something that's hardware that, yes, it's a prototype, but the hardware is built, progressing, iterating, and we can all see it with our own eyes. And, um, that's something that the other, um, the other approaches, you know, don't have. And I, I don't think they could have it really given their, uh, their architectures. I think Starship's really the only one that's able to do that, but that's like, you look at Starship and a lunar variant would be different, but it's based on this thing that we can already see it with our own very eyes. That is, you know, you could, you could go up and touch it. You could watch it actually do something and see its progress from test flight to test flight. And um, as a as an enthusiast for space exploration, it's captured my um, excitement and inspired me much more than uh, beautiful artistic renders and interesting ideas that exist in the uh, hearts and minds of the people that design them and the engineers who put forth the the effort to really think it through in a conceptual space seeing something as a prototype be iterated upon is much different of an experience and um watching th- this is my uh personal perspective but watching um and or listening to the human landing system program director speak about starship i have a feeling connected with them on that level as well and maybe that wasn't captured or a factor really in the decision because it's an emotional response, but there's excitement here and it's, it's different. Um, and I think that's something that SpaceX has done ever since grasshopper, ever since, you know, Falcon one that that's just, uh, in their DNA as a company, um, that really, uh, smashes the expectation, disrupts the industry, whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's just different. 
And um, one last thing I want to say about Starship on this note is that it is radically different from, again, any expectation, any any uh, assumptions here. And the fact that it was selected gives me... Um, hope, you might I say. Hope. I wasn't going to say confidence. I, I think hope is the better word for innovation to prevail. Um, and like when you think, of, oh, how, humans getting back on the moon, hu- humans going to Mars, and we kind of think of, well, how could we extend what's been done before? But here it's like, let's wipe the slate clean and think about how to do it and do it well. And it's it does fill me with hope that um, by NASA selecting SpaceX and their unusual unconventional design assessing it for what it is saying it meets their criteria within their budget let's do it let's let's go ahead why not let's like this is this is innovation at its at its best and so if spacex kind of smashes that um then hopefully the next startup or maybe it changes some minds at some of the older companies to think more outside the box and take more chances take more risks and um we start living in the sci-fi world that people in the fifties dreamed we would be, and we get flying cars sometime soon. You know what I mean? Like this is the step toward, toward, um, achieving that sci-fi dream is forgetting, not forgetting, but learn, taking innovation and treating it seriously and not just, uh, becoming strange because it looks different. Yeah. Yeah. Complacency is not where, not how we improve. And so, uh, that's the one thing that is like the pure emotional response to this. Uh, but I think it's important and uh, I hope it inspires the younger people to say like, Hey, that looks way different than the other ones. Maybe I can do something that's even crazier by some people's standards. And like, I think that's the best way. So I'm going to push for it. And it, it, you know, there you go. Soapbox over. I'll step down now. Sorry about that. I tend to do. Oh my God. It's just, yeah, it's it's really exciting. Yeah. I I agree. I think SpaceX has always been the underdog for a while, for a long while, has been the underdog, and I think a lot of people saw the potential. A lot of enthusiasts saw the potential and it kind of represented their dreams. But I suspect there's always been kind of a, a feeling that that that's not that's not the mainstream. That's not what NASA is going to pick. It's too risky. It's no way that's what, you know, option A, I mean, one award funding is going to go to. It's going to go to something Starship safe. Have a, even th- seeing Starship have a bid a year ago, I thought it was arrogance or hubris. Like, okay, really? Like, like cool your jets here. But there you go. Yeah, definitely will be exciting to see it land on the moon. And with all that extra cargo capacity, who knows what else they might be able to bring with them. Okay, I think this is a good segue into talking about what would be different about the lunar variant of Starship compared to what we see um, being tested in Boca Chica. Yeah, so the exciting bit about this award period was that we got a new official render from NASA and SpaceX. Um, There's been two released concepts of a, a lunar Starship uh, the most striking visual appearance is it's painted white um, versus metallic stainless steel, uh, but also it doesn't have any aerodynamic surfaces. Um, when Starship, with Lunar Starship, the concept of operations is that 
once it launches from Earth, it never returns and lands back on Earth. So it goes into orbit. It gets refilled by tanker flights of a tanker version of Starship, goes to, to the moon, lands on the moon, goes back to Earth orbit, so it doesn't need any flaps. So we're not going to see any kind of kickflip or uh, flap action during a landing. Uh, also, it's got big honking landing legs, which is something that Elon Musk mm-hmm. seems to be allergic to with Starship and Super Heavy. But we see big honking uh, landing legs on the side. They're definitely very reminiscent of just your standard lunar lander landing legs, like something out of the out of the apollo mission or you know what the national team kind of proposed yeah makes sense thinking about it scientifically when you have a bunch of loose sediment like regolith and whatever you Mm -hmm. want lots of surface area to support such a big vehicle and uh you know if they can extend and form a wider base it's more stable everything like that like it makes sense uh, it's just, yeah, it's a departure it, from, is it, from the design language. I mean, I'm looking at the illustration at the moment, and it the the landing gear doesn't look retractable at all to me. Is that is that the case? I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, I, it probably it, might retract once, you know, during takeoff or something like that. But you know, it's it's got big big old legs that stick out. Kind of a key functional aspect is the ability to kind of auto level to support landing mm-hmm. on sloped terrain. Uh, Starship is extremely tall, especially when compared to the other landers, but it does have a, a lower center of mass. There are six Raptors at the base of the vehicle, um, but it's kind of Raptors at the bottom, a long fuel tank that's half full, maybe even less than half full. Uh, and then all the crew and cargo at the top in the nose cone. And so a wide base that can you know, auto-level to handle slopes and rough terrain is definitely a nice uh, advantage to kind of level out and keep it stable. Definitely. definitely. And, and there would be no technical requirement for landing gear stowage as per all of our previous lunar landers. That That would be... But that would be advantageous in terms of landing on rough terrain. One interesting aspect of the concept of operation for the lunar variant is that it will have to rendezvous with the with the Orion capsule. I'm yeah, I was confused quite about curious this. Can how you, that would work. Can you can you explain what the what the deal is? Uh, during the press conference, someone asked about how this would this idea of Starship would integrate with SLS. And I was very confused. And then they started talking about Orion. What? I thought Starship was the was the vehicle here. So how does the Space Launch System and Orion fit into the picture now that SpaceX Starship will um, be taking people to the moon? What does that, how does that work? So Orion is NASA's chosen and certified relatively deep space vehicle. Um, and so it's going to be taking uh, astronauts from the surface of Earth into low Earth orbit and then taking them all all the way to lunar orbit. And the plan for Orion is to eventually take them from Earth to lunar gateway, right? And that's a place that they can stay for extended periods of time. Um, to, I just want to catch, catch folks up. Uh, we're using these terms here. The lunar gateway would be a 
um, a space station, like a permanent outpost in an orbit around the moon. And then Orion is a capsule that's very much like how you imagine the Apollo capsule to look, except larger. Um, and so it's on that scale. It's not meant for long-term habitation. It's meant to carry crew safely uh, into space around the moon and then dock with Gateway. So just sort of jog people's memory for what Orion and the Gateway are. Exactly. And so with NASA, with the planned target date of 2024, they've told all their contractors that the landers need to be able to either dock with Gateway or dock with Orion. And that's not a huge issue. Um, They can use a standardized docking adapter, similar to what Crew Dragon and the International Space Station have. Um, But it is going to lead to kind of a kind of visually hilarious combination of this tiny little Orion capsule next to a massive starship with not only a massive total volume, but a habitable volume that's larger than Orion and the Lunar Gateway. Just it's unimaginable the change in scale going from these traditional designs to Starship. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I want to explain what I think the situation is and then in terms of an analogy. So Orion is designed to be launched on the space launch system and taken to gateway around the moon. So you got this big honking rocket taking this tiny little capsule, putting it toward the moon It using its own propulsion stage, rendezvous with gateway. And then kind of like um, a dinghy going to a sh- on the shore, going out to a larger ship at sea, the astronauts ride on Orion and then it mates with um, Starship and they climb into Starship to go to the and from the lunar surface is that right oh that's roughly similar um comparing the dinghy and the ship uh is very accurate with regards to size i think nasa would argue that orion is going to be the much more advanced uh vehicle and when we look at orion compared to crew dragon orion has a lot of capability that crew dragon doesn't right it has navigation systems that allow it to navigate through deep space It has redundant life support systems that allow it to be uh, more survivable in case of an accident. Um, It is a very robust vehicle that's going to keep its crew safe between Earth and the moon. And another key aspect that NASA outlines in their source selection is that Starship allows, the the constant operation with Starship allows NASA to uh, avoid a lot of risk because they can send it to lunar orbit and have it sit there for up to three months. So over a hundred days. So they can send it fully fueled, make sure that all the systems are working, make sure that all the life support's working, make sure everything's working before astronauts even leave the ground, which is really valuable. And so that kind of shifts the, uh, things have to go absolutely right, exactly on time, kind of critical decisions over to SLS and Orion, which is a system that NASA engineers are fully versed in. They've invested a lot of time and money into, and they can be confident with that. And so that gives SpaceX a little bit more breathing room and risk tolerance because they can launch it and test it and promise NASA, hey, we, we know this thing is safe and tested and ready to receive astronauts. 
at the risk of uh, repeating myself here for the past few years, but does this mean that we're still, um, that the SLS is still a linchpin in this whole concept uh, for the mission architecture? Space Launch System has to launch and has to carry humans on that launch in Orion in order Absolutely. for any of this to come together. Absolutely. There's not a single NASA official uh, at the press conference or in the press release that would entertain the idea of SLS and Orion not being involved in this process. Mm -hmm. um, so Starship, Starship and BFR, the uh, super heavy, sorry, Starship and, and super heavy, the booster that's going to take it to orbit, do not in any way replace the space launch system when it comes to taking humans to the moon. They have the capability to, is what it seems like. Again, there's no reason that the lunar starship, once it's fueled in low Earth orbit, cannot carry indiv individuals from a crewed dragon or any other crewed capsule all the way to the, the to lunar orbit and onto the lunar surface. I think in some way this does provide an exit plan, an exit strategy, if you may will, from for or away from the SLS program if if the need does arise. Now, that would be very unpopular with Congress, and I think that also plays into why NASA never discusses moving away from SLS or even adjusting the plans significantly. Now, this does put the 2024 landing deadline. It makes it very dependent on the success of SLS. And... As we've seen, the margins for the program over time are getting smaller and smaller. And I, I mean, uh, timeline margins. Yeah. What's interesting about the 2024 deadline is that when it was announced in 2019, it was a politically uh, motivated deadline, right? The, and the last year of the second term of the president um, in 2019, and with... Uh, the SLS test failure uh, during their green run, the first launch of SLS will not happen in 2021. It'll speak early 2022. So there's basically 0% chance that SLS uh, will be ready for Artemis 3 in 2024. However, NASA officials, when they announced the HLS award winner, uh, were actually kind of uh, confident that SpaceX would be ready by 2024. Now, when it becomes obvious that Orion and SLS may not be ready by 2024, they might adjust the schedule with SpaceX. Certain milestones might move. But SpaceX seemed uh, confident that they would have something ready for humans to use by 2024 with a demo flight happening before that, an uncrewed landing. Um, but again, things are fluid. This also, the good thing about this selection as a sole selection is that SpaceX is fully funded for 2021. So the work that they expect to get done will get done on time for 2021. Politically, if funding uh, doesn't materialize in 2022, we could see the same thing happen to HLS, that happened to commercial crew, where the funding's not there, the company can't work on their milestones, and the work slows down. But I think most people are optimistic that funding will either uh, stay the same or increase in 2022 and beyond. So it looks like the HLS lander is going to be ready to go and 
uh, available by 2024, no matter what happens um, with the crew launch vehicle. And I don't know if this was part of the the selection of Starship. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but Starship is the best positioned um, approach here vehicle for HLS. It's the most resilient to that uncertainty because uh, this investment that will go toward eventually having a variant of Starship that's capable of landing on the moon and all this. Prior to getting a variant, we have to get the base model of Starship, um, which I assume most of the initial funding is going to go toward, right? Rounding out Starship that can get to orbit in the first place. And so um, on the near term, it benefits SpaceX's commercial viability for Starship as well as HLS. And then if we project out this uncertainty into the future, um, that money is not wasted, whereas uh, maybe a different approach would have just been a, pro- a can- uh, canceled program and um, some you know, uh, engineering hours that went to waste. So um, I think Starship is very resilient here, and I'm glad that it was selected because that money that NASA is allocating in the near term won't go to waste. Um, if it if it's not continued into the future. Yeah, I want to take this opportunity to segue into uh, the real surprising aspect of this announcement is is what, that wait what wait what the, the real surprising <laughs> the okay, real surprise okay, about this I'm ready. is not that SpaceX will be landing people on the surface of the moon, but it's NASA is fully buying into the Starship launch platform, okay. and they actually call this out specifically in the source selection document. SpaceX in the proposal made no artificial distinction between the different variants of Starship. They weren't saying that in order to launch a lunar variant, we'd have like a lunar variant tanker and a lunar variant super heavy. They said, we have Starship, we have super heavy, we have a tanker variant that it needs to fuel up, we have a lunar variant that it needs to land on the moon. And all when you fund this program and you fund this option, you are f- helping us fund the entire system. And that means that NASA is now committed to having an operational super heavy, a reusable super heavy, and a reusable uh, orbital tanking system done by 2024. Whether the lunar variant gets used once, twice, a dozen times, they are ensuring that they have a robust super heavy launch system, uh, which is actually an incredible capability. And this is also brought in by the the fact that SpaceX is contributing roughly 50% of the funding. So we now have kind of an unofficial price tag for uh, Starship at around $6 billion. And it also means that if the HLS program and the Artemis program is successful for NASA, that means that all other countries are going to have to contend with a fully reusable super heavy launch system. But if in if you're going to bet against SpaceX, most people don't want to bet against uh, SpaceX and NASA combined with the backing of the, the U.S. federal government. So it is really a bold statement to not only uh, the U.S. space industry, but the world uh, space industry that uh, NASA is moving beyond medium lift, heavy lift, and going into fully reusable, super heavy lift. Uh, and that, in my opinion, is the most exciting aspect of uh, this week's announcement. This, this is Starship's moment, moment of moving into the mainstream. This is becoming the mainstream 
of the space industry, which would I would imagine would be somewhat terrifying for anyone working on, for some of the competitors working on other platforms. Yeah, uh, other platforms that still have yet to fly. Um, yeah, yeah, and the HLS announcement is really also kind of the the cornerstone announcement of SpaceX taking over NASA's portfolio of like future launch, right? SpaceX is launching HLS, which is uh, a large lunar lander. SpaceX is launching all the modules for the Lunar Gateway. And SpaceX is also building Dragon XL to deliver logistics to the Lunar Gateway. So all the future uh, human spaceflight operations for NASA are going to be developed and flown by SpaceX. And so if you look... If you look at Wait their like late 2020 roadmap, it is SpaceX up and down the full stack. Right. So, okay, okay, okay. Devil's advocate here. I'm a little confused because we were talking about how NASA has this commitment um, to fund competition, select multiple people, you know, have competition. But it sounds like if you look at the paperwork, if you look at that list that you just mentioned, that manifest where SpaceX is, has a uh, Crew Dragon, they have uh, a new cargo dragon, they have Starship, they have Falcon 9. Okay, okay, okay. Does that mean f- facilitating competition is a proxy for saying, hey, pick SpaceX over the traditional uh, provider? Like, it, that's what it f- I, I love SpaceX. Okay, I'm just going to put it out there. I think it's fairly obvious. But it sounds like when, if you look at that list, it sounds like the argument of, oh, hey, give them a chance is like, is that true? Are you giving a chance to the other people besides SpaceX that aren't historically, that haven't historically been providers of services? Or is SpaceX just so good that if you put them in any comp, like, okay, like if they win everything, does that mean you have competition? No. If you look at the programs in a more kind of fine-grained perspective, SpaceX, whenever it comes to launching, SpaceX is roughly if if the if the the pale if the if the person choosing the launch can choose whoever they'd like without the distinction to choose a designated provider, based on price and capability, they're going to choose SpaceX. So, for example, with the Lunar uh, Gateway, that was a, a contract, the competition where NASA went out and found companies who wanted to build different modules for the Gateway. But those companies had the option to choose the launch provider they wanted to go with, and they chose the cheapest option that provided heavy lift, which is Falcon Heavy. With the Commercial Lunar Payload Services program, there's Lots and lots of companies that are building small, uncrewed landers to drop relatively small amounts of payload on the lunar surface. But those companies are allowed to choose their own launch providers, and they're going to choose Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy because it's the most cost-effective launch. Mm -hmm. And so SpaceX is intimately involved in the launching of payloads, but there really isn't um, a dominance in, in SpaceX building spacecraft except for this HLS sole selection. Uh, the Dragon XL um, contract actually got delayed. NASA's deferring payments on that. And there are other competitors who are also looking for follow-up slots to that. So 
you could see you know a potential future variant of Cygnus also uh, compete for that. Um, but when it comes to just Earth launch, SpaceX is dominating, and that really lines up with what SpaceX's mantra is, which is to be the space transportation company that gets people's payloads into orbit. Um, now, sometimes SpaceX is called to build those payloads, like with regards to Starlink and, and HLS, but you know, SpaceX launches more than any other entity in the world, right? SpaceX alone is launching more than China. And China is the country launching the most most rockets, second to the U.S. So, like, they're putting up a ton of payloads at the lowest cost with reusable rockets. And no other country or, or, or entity, for that matter, can do that. I guess what I was trying to say is that it, if there's this open, this, uh, this uh, philosophy of an open floor for competition, but the only only one entity is being selected every time that's a vote of confidence and a uh you know not just pride but also like spacex is capable they do it for better cheaper however you want to to do it they're re- they're winning the contracts for a reason based on the rules that are set up these aren't it's not an emotional decision it's when NASA makes a selection, they are choosing based on criteria that they laid out at the beginning, at the onset. And so... Another thing to keep in mind, Phil, is that SpaceX doesn't always win. There's, so there's two two specific examples here I want to bring up. One is with commercial crew, Boeing Starliner is the second competitor there. They got paid twice as much as SpaceX, and they have a capsule that's comparable in capability to Crew Dragon. They've run into their own challenges, but they are the second option designed to have competition next to SpaceX. And a contract that they actually lost is for the National Security Space Launch Development contracts. So SpaceX bid Starship, but the Department of Defense actually went with uh, ULA's Vulcan and Blue Origin's New Glenn for the initial contracts. But when it comes down to uh, money right, for these development contracts, which aren't providing value to the recipient, right? They're paying someone else to build a capability that then you can go buy. Uh, the DoD down-selected from two to one, and they went with Vulcan. So uh, the DoD is fully funding Vulcan development, and then they're going to contract launches from both Vulcan and from uh, SpaceX for Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy. But you see that with the first round of contracts for National Security Space Launch with SpaceX, where, hey, we didn't get half a billion dollars in development funds, but you're asking for vertical integration, so we need to build a custom vertical integration tower and design a new fairing. It's like, okay, well, the first launch that you buy from us is going to cost $100 million extra, right? So, like, you know, SpaceX is not out here winning every competition. They're not out here winning every single contract. There are other competitors there are things where they have, you know, kind of a co, uh, a co position with another company, uh, and that's what makes this sole sourcing of HLS so surprising, right? If NASA had any other option besides not doing HLS at all, uh, they sh- they would have taken it, right? They really don't want to be beholden to SpaceX uh, because you know what happens if fifty the fifty percent funding that SpaceX promised doesn't materialize. 
right? NASA puts up $2.9 billion and SpaceX d- doesn't, then Starship is not going to happen and the lunar lane is not going to happen. So it is a big risk on NASA's part. And they would much rather have two competitors, even if one is twice as expensive. They just didn't have the extra money to, to do so. And you can see you can see those comments directly kind of mentioned in a solicitation where after providing SpaceX with the bid and SpaceX being the lowest, essentially the lowest bidder for the solicitation, there was nothing, there weren't sufficient funds to support another competitor. So this, at least in this case, that's an artifact of the available funding. But I do suspect in the future, as SpaceX becomes more dominant, competing with them will become harder and harder, which might not be a good thing for the industry at large. Hopefully it's a forcing function. Another another interesting point here, Phil. Uh, This was not with regards to launch, but... Uh, SpaceX and L3 Harris won a space development agency contract to build missile warning satellites. And, mm-hmm. and SpaceX won $150 million and L3 $190 million to each build four satellites. And those are based off of the Starlink satellite bus. So generally, these I think the government is very aware that if you lock yourself into a single provider – that opens up a huge amount of risk. And I think they see what happens with, you know, for example, the F-35 program where the DOD doesn't want to do this. NASA doesn't want to do this. The government really doesn't want to get locked in. But I think it's credit to NASA for, you know, working with SpaceX to match the funding they have with the capability they want and to, you know, in effect, double NASA's budget for HLS by leveraging commercial funds. Right. They weren't able to get the full funding. And so they found a company willing to invest alongside them. So props to, to NASA and SpaceX for taking on that risk. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of both NASA and SpaceX. So uh, I'm just th- these are the weird things that I, I'm seeing from a more removed perspective, because in the news, you, you just see, you know, everyone wants to talk about SpaceX and you don't necessarily hear those other things yeah uh, spacex's pr department is uh, definitely more effective than a lot I mean, of traditional airspace. elon elon himself kind of generates his own news so uh. <laughs> there's some risks that i noted from the solicitation about uh, blue or technical risks on the national team side some of the things that were mentioned uh was timely development of uh their propulsion systems and cryofluid management systems and uh, a failure to close communication links to communication systems. That was a really surprising thing in the contract. And Phil, you brought up how Blue Origin had illegal or unallowable like advanced payments in their contract. They apparently proposed the plan to communicate with this capsule would use five different or six different radio links. And NASA's engineers took their proposal and ran the numbers and said, well, five out of the six uh, aren't physically possible. They don't, they don't close. They don't actually work. And so that's one of those things where it's like, well, is that bad engineering on blue origins part? Did someone screw up? Like, you know, what happened there to, to like, this isn't the first time 
someone's tried to communicate with uh, a vehicle around the, the moon. So that's another very surprising technical mistake in the proposal. It's a very non-novel problem to be solved. Essentially, any spacecraft that ventures into deep space has to close a link budget. And so who knows what happened there or what the reason was for the link budgets to not be closed prior to proposal. Yeah. Another interesting technical um, finding in the report was that uh, people are concerned, you know, instinctually concerned that the SpaceX uh, lander is a single stage. It doesn't have a descent and and ascent stage separate. And so um, it kind of lacks that implicit abort capability. And people have that same concern about Starship launching crew from Earth as well. You know, no built-in abort system. But the space shuttle never had an abort system either. That is true. Okay with that. But the space shuttle killed fourteen people. So like it did. It had a terrible track record of safety. So yeah, it it it, that was very apparent that it didn't have an abort system. But um, so with with Starship, uh, NASA kind of analyzed the proposal. And you see some interesting things that kind of point to historical knowledge from the Apollo program, where uh, Starship has two redundant uh, airlocks. So there's two access points uh, from the pressurized volume of Starship onto the lunar surface. And in the case of emergency, either one of those airlocks can act as kind of a pressurized lifeboat. So if the main crew cabin loses pressure, the crew can kind of take shelter in the airlock for the remainder of the mission, which is kind of exciting. Um, also, they're they're building in the capability to use the liquid oxygen that Starship uses as fuel as backup uh, support. oxygen supply for life support, which is also kind of a novel kind of engineering requirement they're building into the system. So they're layering on these kind of redundancies and levels to keep the crew safe in this kind of large integrated system. And... I think that's kind of kind of neat. I agree. Yeah. That's Ultimately, really cool. I think the model that the space that something like Starship will have to follow is we're we're gonna have to see the same levels of safety in spacecraft as as we see in passenger um, aircraft. There's no abort. There's no abort capability on your commercial flight. <laughs> Partially because it's well, I get- unrealistic to have that abort capability for hundreds of people on board, and so if you do, if we do expect to have a sustainable um, future in space, we will we'll have to have spacecraft that can reliably get places without that need for an abort system on board. Yeah, it's that level of trust that that I think we you know inevitably will have to. Uh, uh, you know, come to terms with eventually. So this is kind of like saying, let's go for it instead and, of... Yeah. yeah, and if you look at the airlines, trust in safety is is a big... It, it's it's a big factor that is, has to be continuously managed. People are mm-hmm. afraid to fly. Planes yeah. have to be a lot safer because even just one crash out of, out of a million flights, even though statistically... It, yeah. you know, everything is still, it's still a lot safer than driving, but people won't, you know, they're not, people might not be as comfortable putting their lives 
even you know in the hands of aircraft engineers and perhaps you know i i, I think the passengers on spacecraft are going to be are a bit different just because they're trained crew and so the risks the risks that will be taken are inherently will be a bit different uh, but but i think that is still going to play into the public perception of the various kind of spacecraft and development and especially starship since it doesn't have that aboard capability yeah so i think that does it for our discussion of the option a award for the human landing system where spacex's starship has been selected to take crew back to the moon if you'd like to contribute to this conversation let's keep it going on twitter we're at specscast or send us an email specscast at gmail.com we read every single one and thanks for listening today if you like this episode make sure to subscribe we're on apple podcasts stitcher spotify and any other podcast app you choose to use and we have a huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts including interviews with key people in the space industry in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets and commentaries on recent events in the space industry like this one on our website blog.specscast.com our music is by kevin mcleod we'll see you next time